This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to The Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash Trigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. Today on The Composer Chronicles, composer Michael Soutenreich joins me as our special guest. Michael is a New York-based Israeli composer of contemporary music. He's a recipient of several prestigious awards, such as the Toru Takamitsu Composition Prize from Japan, the Maritirano Competition here in the United States, and the Prime Minister Award in Israel. In 2019, he premiered his chamber work, Trajectories, for a string octet with the Jack and Amivos Quartets at the Lucerne Festival, as well as an orchestral work titled A Rube Goldberg Machine with Pyotr Vaklovic and the ACA Orchestra at the Aspen Music Festival. Currently, Michael is a McCracken PhD Fellow at the New York University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. At the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear his chamber piece titled Sparks and Flares. Just a bit of a heads up before digging into the episode, due to some technical difficulties and other various hiccups when we recorded back in September, Michael and I had to start our conversation over several times. I appreciate him being so willing to restart the amount of times that he did, so if you hear us reference previous conversations, just be aware that is why. From Alexandrian Media, this is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of composers past and present. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 24, Michael Soutenreich. get started in composition where, where did you really start um so i may have mentioned to you before in one of our previous conversations <laughs> <laughs> that 
My beginning in music was uh, pretty traditional. As a kid in school, we had like our quarter class, music class where all the kids uh, buy a quarter. And then it's a very shrill classroom uh, <laughs> with uh, 30 or a quarters playing right. out of key at the same time. But for me, that was uh, a discovery. And it was something I, I mean, it wasn't a discovery. I knew I loved music from day zero of my life. But it was the first time I started playing an instrument, and it was really easy, and it was really fulfilling. It was really cool. Quickly, I moved from the recorder in class in school to playing the clarinet in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, private teacher scenario. Very quickly within those lessons, it became apparent that I don't love to practice my exercises. <laughs> so my clarinet teacher suggested that instead of practicing the menial exercises, maybe I should go and take some composition lessons and come up with my own stuff that I would actually practice. So I took her advice and it turned out to be a great advice because I found a composition teacher that was really great. Mm -hmm. And starting composition this early on was transformative because it changed the way I listened to music from a very young age because learning theory from a young age and actually like working with creating music from a young age changed my perspective as a kid engaged with music in the world. Because even, you know, people who play violin or piano very well at a young age, often the behind the scenes of the music is still missing because theory and composition is not necessarily a direct part of uh, learning how to play an instrument. Uh, so that was great for me, and I felt the minute I started taking composition lessons, listening to every piece of music became a lesson on its own. So I definitely recommend more people to start young. Anyway, uh, my first composition teacher was pretty amazing, and he, instead of working in the traditional, here's my piece, and then my teacher will share his experience or his knowledge or his technique or whatever and help me bring out my piece into fruition, it was more of a boot camp in a sense, because mm. uh, he was training me into becoming a composer, which, which is something I have not done since. One thing that we used to do that will probably stay with me forever, and I will try to do it with my students, is uh, he would give me a first bar of a piece. Okay. And then he would say write the next 16 bars hmm. or 15 bars. So I would. And then I would show this to him and he would be like, that's really good. And then he would take a big eraser and erase 15 out of the 16 bars and it would be like, okay, let's keep that bar, that first bar that you wrote, but continue it in a different direction. Bar three has to go somewhere else than where you took it first. Write another okay. 16 bars. So I would go, I write another 16 bars, and he would say, oh, great, that's very good. Then he would take his eraser and erase everything up until bar three. And he would say, okay, now take it into a different direction. And this was kind of an exercise in, I guess, thematic development or idea development. It really forced me into figuring out all the different ways a granular idea could go. Right. Mm -hmm. So so it goes this way and then it goes, no, I'm, I'm cutting off this branch. It can't go this way. Take it somewhere else. And that was one of the best exercises I've ever had to do. Really squeeze out. OK, what else can I do with this musical idea? Where else can I take it?
So we had a lot of exercises like that, a lot of like building the compositional muscle rather than, okay, go write music. Right. Just copying and pasting somebody else's music. Right. So it was a lot of it was just figuring out how to think like a composer, uh, what's in your toolbox and, and so on. What was it like being a student at Juilliard as a composition student, particularly? Juilliard is great, and it's a beast that knows what it is. So um, Juilliard, uh, it's, it's going to sound really bad to say that, but I, I mean it in the best way. It's almost like a factory. They know where they want you to end up. Mm-hmm. They make it clear for you where you should strive. They know very well how to get you there. Mm-hmm. And I think in general that's true for the conservatory um, approach. So for Juilliard, the abstract entity Juilliard, it's very clear what's good music and what's bad music, what's a good composer, what's a bad composer, what's a good violinist, what's a bad violinist, uh, what's a good career, what's a bad career, what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. It's very, very black and white in Juilliard. And that, I think, is great for people who fit really well with that same state of mind. For people who, by the way, it fit very well for me um, at the time. At the same time, I think for people who want to experiment and want to explore and want to break things and want to make their own paths, they're, they're really going to be you know, pushed down in such a, an environment. But for me, at the time, it was great. It was everything I needed. I was a bit lost in terms of what I wanted to do with my music and what I want to do with the music. And it was great. Not having to think too much about why I'm doing it or all of the surrounding and just actually dealing with the creation itself was very liberating. And I worked with a wonderful composer and teacher, uh, Matthias Pincher, that just joined Juilliard the same year I did. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really nice. He just joined and all of the other faculty had their studios full. I was uh, his only student at the time. Oh, wow. And then there was another composer that switched from his current studio into Matthias's studio. So we were two. And it was very nice because it felt very familial. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you get that close connection with just that one teacher. Rather than your teacher having so much focus on so many other people, you get that attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly for the same reason, it can also be almost incestual because there's so much writing on this for both parties. On the one hand, I'm getting a lot of attention. I'm getting, you know, everything I need in terms of resources of attention and, and, and whatever. In our one of our previous attempts, you had mentioned the struggles of getting into the Paris Conservatory. Was that around the same time of you trying to get into Juilliard, or was that much earlier? I finished my undergraduate in 2011, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm originally from Israel, and Israel really doesn't have a new music scene. It's getting better, but... Uh, it's not to the point where one can really be a full-time composer. Why is that? There's two or three really serious ensembles mm-hmm. that do new music that they can all commission you every year. Right. Because there's other composers. And orchestras basically gave up on uh, 
not only Israeli music, but on a new music altogether. There's a token, <laughs> token composer a couple times a year, but it's no way to make a living. It's all technical stuff. Right. But it's enough that I knew that career-wise, I would not be able to stay in Israel. Mm. Or at least I would have to make myself an international composer outside of Israel first, then, you know, maybe down the line I can move back to Israel. But it was very clear that at the time, living in Israel was, was the only way to go. Uh, and Israel being basically, it's not in Europe, but artistically, it's very close to Europe. So the festivals are always very intertwined and ensembles from Europe come to Israel, ensembles from Israel go to Europe. And it's very, the scene feels very close. I thought Europe would be the right place for me. And being really connected with French music and specifically I, at the time I was really moved by uh, the French composer Henri Dutier. So I really hoped to go and study with him. Uh, that unfortunately did not happen because he passed away rather quickly after I moved to France. Oh. It was surprisingly harder on me than I thought it would be. I think for many composers, certainly for me, finding a composer that you feel like speaks the musical language that you speak or that you want to speak, somebody you want to engage with is, uh, is rare, especially in new music because everybody does something a little bit different. So, you know, him passing was a huge loss for me. It was a, like a loss of uh, of like a beacon of light or like a, a road marker or I don't know how to call it, but it was pretty hard. Yeah. It actually surprised me how hard it was on me because I never knew the guy. In any case, he passed away and I still needed to get a career going. Uh, so I decided I will join the conservatory in France and I auditioned. And they need to make a reality show about their auditions. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, it, it was one of the most challenging things I had to do in my life, mostly because of the stamina required. So I, I think it's about a week long or just short of a week of auditions. You are, it's you against the clock. For example, one day they would give you a, a piano piece and they would say, here you have 14 or 15 hours, here's a pencil, here's some paper. We'll see you when you're done with an orchestration of that piece. Wow. Or another day, we had the same kind of, you're closed in a room. And everybody has its own room. You're not even, they tell you at the beginning of the day, bring uh, food for the entire day, bring water for the entire day. And they basically say, the minute you leave the room, your exam is done. So every day I came to the test with like a big bag. You know, I, I went there with, with a bottle of wine every day. Really? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> once the sun set, I'm, I'm starting on with the wine. You have to understand how claustrophobic and how, you know what? Now people really get it with the quarantine from COVID. Being closed off in the room, knowing that the minute you leave the room, your test is done. So you better not leave the room. <laughs> makes the, the the walls really feel like they're closing in on you. So I tried to make it the least unpleasant as possible. So I, I got, sure. yeah. And I made it all the way through the final stage, at which point you are placed in front of a panel of the faculty, and their job is to make you miserable. Really? Yeah, I mean, French people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Damn French. Yeah, no, I love it, though. <laughs> No, so, yeah. so they sit there and 
it's very clear that nobody wishes you any harm, but mm-hmm. they are not trying to make it easy for you. Right. So, you know, for instance, in America, it's very – every audition I've ever had in America, they would always be like, hi, how are you? Please sit. Do you want some water? Okay, please don't worry. Our point is just to get to know you. And it's very, like, soothing before the test starts. This is very different than, <laughs> than my experience there. Uh, there you, you enter the room. Nobody talks to you. The head of the panel says, okay, we're going to begin. And, you know, and it's all very, very uh, serious. Mm-hmm. So the entire test, I was – so just as an example to the, um, to the cruelty, prior to this uh, panel talking to you, you get 20 minutes with a score in a room. Mm-hmm. And the point is that you have 20 minutes to analyze that score that you're given, and then you have to present the analysis for 60 minutes. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> it takes me a day to come up with 10 minutes. Same, same. <laughs> it's, they're just evil is, is my takeaway. Anyway, um, <laughs> and this all has to be in French, of course. So long story short, uh, that did not go well. My French was not the place where I could uh, bullshit for 60 minutes after only having 20 minutes with a piece of music. It was very concise. It had a lot of me pointing at parts of the score and being like, here, here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, I got the message uh, not long after that I didn't make it in. Mm. But I knew that it's either this or, you know, moving to Germany or moving somewhere else and starting the process all over again. I was already in France. I already had an apartment. I already had some kind of a routine. So I decided, okay, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to bring my French up to the level where I can bullshit for 60 minutes. Yeah. And I will retake the test. So I stayed in France another year. I applied again to audition. And I got a letter back saying, sorry, we met with you last year. No point for you to come audition again. Oh, yikes. Yeah, that was really the part where I was, uh, I really, I was really in in a bad place. I felt that all of my options are closing in on me. I felt like I dedicated a full year of like just being there so I could pass that final stage. And now they're not even giving me a chance. The composer I wanted to study with is now dead. And there's not really anywhere for me to go because I don't speak German, so I can't go to Germany, and I don't speak Italian, so I can't go to Italy. And if I do, I have to start this entire process of learning a language again and having to know how to bullshit for 60 minutes in German. Yeah. So uh, I was in a really bad place, and I uh, it's not as much that I decided to go back to Israel as I had to go back to Israel. There was nothing for me in France, and my visa basically expired by that time. And I came back to Israel deciding that I am, I'm going to do a Hail Mary. I'm going to send some applications in America, a place I know nothing about. I don't know nothing about the composers in America. I don't know American music. But I can't say in Israel because there's no you know, professional avenues for me there. Right. Or if that doesn't pan out, I will be something that's not a composer. I will go study engineering, whatever. Yeah. So that was where I was, and I was uh, pretty down. 
Um, and I applied to a bunch of schools in America and I never had to become an engineer. <laughs> Good <laughs> or, thing too. Or at least not yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Yes. Um, so that was 2014. And I moved to New York to go to Juilliard. Yeah, been here since then. That's awesome. Yeah. What often inspires you to write a particular piece? Is there any like particular thing that happens in your life or certain artistic forms or really anything that really inspires you? Yeah. I think the thing that inspires me the most is the music. It's some sound. It's some musical idea. And I will say that now we live in a point in time where, first of all, program notes are a must, mm-hmm. right? I can't submit a piece to a commission or to a festival and be like, this piece is about music. <laughs> you know, you have to come up with the story. And now we're also in an age where many composers, me included, try to connect it to with uh, political causes or with social causes or things like that, which in a sense, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a fine, it, it, it in itself is not a bad thing, but I think it's very external to the music itself. Um, and I think I've been thinking about this topic a lot recently. I, I think the, the surface of the music really is trying to take too big of a of a of a role in what the piece is is meant to be. I think at the end mm-hmm. of the day, music is meant to be abstract. I was in a Lucerne Festival uh, last summer, and I worked with uh, there's a German composer called uh, Wolfgang Riem, and we had a panel of composers, and a, a lot of them very successfully and very interestingly produced pieces that were very self-aware and very aware of the medium and very aware of the forces and, and try to engage with it. Mm. And Wolfgang Grimm said something that I thought was um, something I needed to hear. And what was that? He said, music can convey non-musical ideas. It can convey political ideas. It can convey extra musical ideas, but he does it very poorly. What music conveys very well is music. Right. And and it clicked for me when he said it because, yes, you can create a piece that is based on this intricate relationship that is political. And what – so there was recently a story about um, – I hope I'm not saying something too wrong. Uh, there was uh, a couple of years ago uh, a shooting at a nightclub. Uh, oh, at an LGBT, Yeah, at Pulse. And um, I'm not very fresh on the details, but a composer recently got a commission to write a piece and he decided he wants to write a piece about that event. This composer was not LGBTQ and there was, uh, at least in New York and at least in my circle of composers, there was kind of like this uh, disapproval why this uh, person is trying to benefit off of uh, this tragedy and there was two sides that he's trying to bring light to this. And the other side was like, he's trying to profit off of it. Doesn't matter. And I thought to myself, the only thing that composer needs to do to make his, like people called for him to rewrite a piece, to write a new piece instead of that piece. Hmm. And I thought all he needs to do is change the title of the piece and nobody would ever know. Right. This is kind of like, 
a caricature of how silly it became to associate politics with music. You just change the title, you just change the program note. Nobody will ever know this was written about a shooting at a nightclub. When you said that, I actually thought about Beethoven's Third, just changing the, uh, the subtitle of it, and automatically it's about something different. Right, right. Yeah, no one would ever know. Exactly. And whenever I use non-musical stuff in my music, which uh, for me tends to come from the world of psychology, I try to use it as an inspiration rather than a narrative, if that mm. makes sense. So it's yeah. uh, something I use to help me out in the process of writing the piece, but certainly not what the piece is about. The piece mm-hmm. is about music. The piece is about sounds and how the sounds interact. And I am guilty in um, you know falling into the... I would write long program notes about how the piece engaged with this topic and how whatever. And it's true. That's how I thought about it. But it's very far from the truth of how I, I imagine anybody would hear it. And I don't expect anybody to hear it that way. So I'm very, very drawn to uh, psychology and to mental illness. Okay. And specifically in mental illness, I am drawn to the fact that it is completely unlike other you know, medical cancer is, is cancer, right? right? But mental illness is subject to social norms. Right. So in a society where people eat animals, killing an animal and eating it is completely normative. But in a society that's vegetarian, it could see as, as psychotic, right? Or, yeah. or how homosexuality used to be seen as a mental illness today most of us accept it as not an illness at all. Yeah. So the idea that unlike other medical, because mental health is attempting to join the other medical subfields as if it's just as objective, as if it's yeah. just as accurate, but it is completely dependent on, on non-subjective things, uh, non, uh, non-objective things. Right, yeah. So I find that concept very interesting. And I wrote a big piece called ICD-10, Chapter 5, Mental and Behavioral Disorders. Uh, Mm. So ICD-10 is like a big book that contains all of the world's illnesses known to sciences. And Chapter 5 is dedicated to all the mental illnesses. Okay. And it was kind of like my commentary on how this chapter appears in the same book with, you know, with cancer and with other diseases as if it's just the same, whatever, whatever. I use that as inspiration. I took all kinds of chapters in the book. I read their symptoms. I tried to think how the music of this patient would sound like, okay, method acting, okay? Yeah. But it's, and then all of this made it to the program note. All of this made it to the title. But it's, it's, um, it's part of what, what being a composer is on the business side. Uh-huh. But I certainly do not expect anybody to diagnose the patients uh, through my music. Right. <laughs> okay, so let's bring it full circle. So sometimes non-musical ideas would really tie things together for me, uh, uh-huh. especially if it's a multi-movement piece that there needs to be something, you know, a link that connects everything. But more importantly for me, is a musical idea. It's just a, a sonic idea. 
is very rare for me to come up with, by the way. I mean, I'm in my mind, there's two kinds of composers. There's um, the composers that are really, really great at coming up with material, mm-hmm. like Mozart, like Debussy, like many others. And the composers that are actually really bad at coming up with materials, but kind of making things with their superpower, like Beethoven or Ravel. So, you know, we know about Beethoven that he has like million sketches of like every, you know, symphony theme that he's coming up with. And there's many yeah. iterations until he finds the right one. Whereas Mozart, he just, you know, comes up with an infinite supply of genius ideas. Yeah. But there's something to the hardship uh, that makes Beethoven as genius as he is. Yeah. I think I'm not comparing myself with Beethoven, but I'm saying I'm that kind of composer that I'm not, I'm not a Mozart. Good ideas are really hard for me to come by. And that's why when there's a musical cell or, or a sonic idea that really clicks with me, I'm like, I'm like a kid in a, in a, in a candy store. <laughs> right. It's not to discredit them from being geniuses or calling no. yourself a composer. It's, it just takes just another step to finding the right thing. It's just a question of knowing one's strengths and weaknesses. Right. Like Mozart and Chopin are such geniuses at coming up with incredible material. It's endless. Yeah. I can't do that. I don't have that superpower. <laughs> but when I do find something, when I do get something I can work with, I feel like that's where my strength is. I, I can do a lot with it. Listening to this episode right now, come in a little closer. Let me tell you a story. Back in the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown, I was truly struggling with my health and fitness. My gym was closed, and I didn't have any equipment at home to be able to do a proper workout. I was laying around my apartment, moving from my couch to my bed, and vice versa, reading a ton of books eating unhealthy foods, and just living my couch potato life. I would occasionally get the nerve to go out on a walk in my neighborhood, but those were too few and far between. Then, something happened. It was like a switch flipped in my head, and I was sick of this life and I needed to do something about my health. That's when I found Roy Belzer Fitness, and then everything changed. Every weekday, I wake up with an email in my inbox containing a new workout video, and I can do that workout whenever my busy schedule allows. Better yet, in these videos, Roy does the workout with us, so his words of encouragement mean all the more to me, who is just sweating all over the place. But Roy Bowser Fitness isn't just a daily workout routine. It's a community 
a shoulder to lean on, and a body-positive space where all are welcome and are free from judgment. Via a private Facebook community, every student gets to share their own journeys and encourage others to keep going. We all get to engage with each other every day, sharing sweaty selfies after workouts, nutrition tips and recipes, and posts that keep us accountable for one another. When you sign up for Roy's class, you not only get to join this incredible group of people to keep you accountable, you also get a free nutrition guide and the opportunity to win incredible prizes like free memberships and cash prizes. You can get back to your weight loss and fitness journeys right now when you sign up for Roy Belzer Fitness. Just go to RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up or click on the link in the show notes and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout to get 10% off your first month of classes. Again, that's RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your first month. Join me and this wonderful community of like-minded individuals living healthier lifestyles in a body-positive space with Roy Belzer Fitness. Okay, okay, shh, 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 the episode's starting again. I know you mentioned before that your teacher was really trying to hone in on your abilities and what you can make, but do you have any composers that you really admire or try to emulate in any way? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I'll start by saying that I think there's no better way to be a composer or to learn how to be a composer than to emulate and fail at doing it. In fact, I think it's almost the only way. So I think composition has two, at least now I'm thinking of it, there's two facets. There's basically the gym and there's the real world. Uh The gym is where you practice your creativity and you practice your motive development and you practice your orchestration and you practice your form and you practice all of those things. And you mm-hmm. can make exercises for every single idea. You can work on that thing through an exercise. Mm-hmm. In the real world, emulating is the only way for several reasons. Firstly, we can't not emulate. Right. Right? Nobody picks up the pencil and writes music that, you know, that nobody has ever heard anything like it. It's completely novel in every way. Right. There's always something we're building off of. And usually the thing we're building off of is the music we like. Right. You hear something that moves you and you say, I want to be able to move me or my, my listeners same way. Whether directly or indirectly, that's you emulating. Um, at least the sentiment, at least the goal, right? I think composers find their voice when they try to emulate, but they are not that person, right? I can try to emulate Beethoven all day. I would not be able to be Beethoven. I might become something just as good, but it's not going to be Beethoven. 
Right. It's going to be my take. Even if I try to be as accurate and as true to the source as I can, I can't. I'm not him. Right. Right. And especially when somebody has multiple people that they bring into the mix, then all of a sudden they cross contaminate. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think composition is an emulating craft and the people I look to, to emulate, they change all the time. Right. Um, I really, really, really try to listen to my generation. Okay. So my my um, trajectory basically was uh, falling in love with classical music at large, mm-hmm. finding composers I like specifically, and you know building off of those. Uh, a lot of those, as I mentioned, were the French. Mm-hmm. So you know classical music at large, the greats, and then a specific maybe uh, country, and then maybe a specific period. But now. I feel like I listen mostly to people that belong to my generation, Uh the 20-some, 30-some year olds, right? even 40-some year olds, but, you know, not much more than that for multiple reasons. I really want to be able to engage with whatever my peers are engaged with. Uh I mean, most of classical music is looking back at the greats, right? Looking back at what they did and conversing with them in a sense but i guess i'm departing from this a little bit and and focusing more on the not yet greats yeah there's a lot of a lot of wonderful composers uh i'm i'm a little apprehensive to name names just because i'm afraid i'm not gonna name somebody and then they're gonna call me and be like michael come you on <laughs> you forget about me um <laughs> But yeah, I do try to focus on on people that that are currently building their careers, their mid career, um, and they're not the greats yet. Right. But let me think of some uh, bigger names. There's an Austrian composer that I absolutely love. His name is Bat Furer. Okay. He has two avenues. He either writes chamber music or writes operas, and they're very different from one another. It's like his chamber music is like a laboratory. He's trying all kinds of crazy stuff. And then in his operas, it all comes together. I think he is a unique master. He's older now, so mm. he's not going to call me. <laughs> <laughs> um, who else? So Dutier, like I mentioned, obviously is somebody I, I am really into. Uh, Matthias Pincher, my former teacher, is somebody I really admire. A lot of the French, Mission. Yeah, I noticed that I, I tend to uh, be drawn more to the French than to the Germans. Maybe kind of mid-generation, I will say Andrew Norman is uh, really doing some great stuff. Okay. Um, there's a um, Serbian composer that I think is really great. His name is Marko Nikodijevic. Okay. I've heard of the name. I don't know any of his music. Yeah, but I feel like this list can can be very very unfocused. Yeah. What kind of ensembles or uh, genres do you find yourself going towards composing the most? Well, this usually for me, at least at this point, uh, has to do more with who's commissioning. So it's almost tragic 
No, it's not tragic. I I can't. I'm not. <laughs> what is tragic is that it used to be. Oh my God, I'm gonna sound like such a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be really sincere though. It used to be that I had a musical idea, or some, you know. Yeah, just a musical idea that I was like, oh, I have this great idea for orchestra or I have this great idea for a string quartet and then I would write it and then I would try to get my friends to play it or I would submit it to competitions. I kind of stopped doing that just because now the way it works is I'll, I have a commission for that ensemble. Let's come up with an idea for them. So at this point, I'm not really picking my ensembles and my uh, genres that directly, even though... I would love to get an orchestral commission. <laughs> yeah. It's been, it's been a while and I, I think I have a cool idea. But I, other than the orchestral niche that I've maybe moved a little away from, uh, chamber music is generally di- dictated to me. Which, by the way, I like. I, I like the the puzzle element of it. It's like, like, you need to write a piece, but it has to be for that many players and it has to have that duration. And the theme of the evening is this. What can you do? And I think that's also, um, you know, how we get creative within constraints. I really like to avoid doing things that I feel like I know how to do. Okay. So if I write a piece that was very successful at doing what it's trying to do, I will move away from that sound world. Why is that? Multiple reasons. I guess, first, I really enjoyed exploration part of composing a piece so like dealing with something i don't feel like is is you know a native language for me is um is always more interesting to compose for me but also i have this attitude i don't know if it's right we're gonna have to wait 20 years but i believe that at some point every composer is bound to regurgitate their their sound their habits and I have this in my mind that, okay, knowing that this will happen to me, I want to make my sound as broad as I can now. So when I do regurgitate it, it's a wide scope rather than a very narrow band. But, I, you know, now I'm also thinking that the narrow band has um, a big benefit because some composers that really work in this narrow band – Again, they have this creativity within limitations that they find ways to really push it further. Uh, so, you know, I, we have to check back in 20 years, see where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so interesting. You get stuck in some way and you get commissioned based off of that. And then that's all you keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. Well, that's all well and good. If if you're happy with that, then then that's fine. But if you broaden your band there, then you get the possibility for other people. You get this commission, you get this commission because people heard that piece that you wrote or that piece. And Or of course, there's uh, a lot of, uh, the opposite can happen as well, right? If we're talking about the business side of things, maybe mm-hmm. somebody heard this piece of mine and they commissioned me and I write a piece that's more like that piece of mine and they go, oh, that's not what I wanted at all. Good example to think in that regard, I think, is uh, is Debussy and Ravel. There's no way to mistake Debussy, right? He he has such a very clear sound. Ravel, even more, you know, later into his career, did some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. He really tried to push the envelope for himself, 
And uh, I think, you know, in the history books, Debussy is the more successful composer. Right. So I don't know what's the right way, but this is the fun way for me. Mm -hmm. I will say, because you mentioned commissions, I don't think your characterization was necessarily what I think is happening. Okay. I think when composers come up with um, the same stuff again and again, I don't think it's because that's what they're expected to produce. Mm-hmm. but because they have to produce, so they produce what they know how to produce. Okay. And I kind of fell into that trap as well, just because if you want to keep afloat financially, you need a minimum amount of, of commissions, and you can't really take your time, right? You have three, four months per piece at most. You have to provide a – there's a deadline. You got to work. So you can't reinvent the wheel every time. Right. It's really time-consuming. With that regard, I will say, hot take, with all of the horrible tragedies that that COVID brought, Mm. I am really grateful for the time out that I got as a composer. So all of my commissions got canceled this year. And I'm saying this so happy because the past few months – Instead of worrying about, oh, I have to make up, you know, make that deadline. I have to, you know, finish this piece. I've been really going back to what is it that I want to say? How do I want to say it? And I've been doing some really focused work on my taste and on my craft Mm. and on my thinking and on my goals. This is something I would not have been able to do without COVID because a commission would get canceled or get another commission or I'll find something to do. But now there's no concerts, there's no, nothing. So I could just you know, go in my room and, and think. And I've been nearing that point of like feeling burnt out, feeling like I'm just, you know, uh, in a race. Right. So, yeah, not, not worth it, but that's the lemonade I'm making out of it. That's good. You just gotta make the best out of what you you're dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does a normal composition process look like for you? I like to mix it up. So there, a lot of time there's sketching involved. Uh, sketching in the broadest sense of the word, sketching could be of shapes or of relationships. Some pieces start off with. Um, a Wikipedia article that for some reason, you know, was interesting for me. So I put it in this digital notebook that I have and I start creating this tree of associations and things. Sometimes I have a piece uh, for String Octet that was just premiered last year called Trajectories that is basically the backstory of it is that I thought about how uh, intonation in language works. Like how we convey meaning, we can say the same thing, but, you know, make it into a question if you go up or, you know, go down or you you can really affect meaning just by by intonation. And I sketched out like intonations. Then I wrote the entire piece doesn't have any pitches. It just has shapes. So the string players have to basically fit the shape, but I don't care about the specific pitch. Because it's about the shape of the whatever. So every piece is, um, I try to do something a little differently. I think it helps me be more creative and I think it, it's more fun. <laughs> so actually, that piece that I just mentioned, 
it, it was fully composed as a graphic score, but then I noted it as traditional notation. Um, so the notation itself is not that uh, interesting in the final stage, but like seeing the, the full piece graphically, I mean, I think a lot of composers would have stopped there, and I don't think that would have been a mistake. Mm-hmm. It's just that me as a composer, for some reason, I have this obsession with, uh, with detail. Mm-hmm. So once everything is flushed out, I, I, I did decide to uh, notate every starting pitch, every final pitch and everything. But that was the last stage of, of the work. Right. Yeah. Do you have any current projects that you're working on? No. <laughs> I mean, I was supposed to write a piano and wind quintet for the Santa Fe Chair Music Festival was supposed to premiere a couple of weeks ago. So that was pushed to next year. I'm not working on it now. I am, I've put it aside. But all of these uh, projects are going to happen. They're just pushed. So there's another piece I'm doing for an ensemble in Paris. It's going to be for uh, an ensemble and uh, in a small choir for singers. And uh, I'm writing something about, um, there's this phrase, I never said she stole your money. And what's interesting about this phrase is you can change the meaning of the phrase by emphasizing any of the words in the in the phrase. I never said she stole your money. I never <laughs> said she stole your money. And so on. You can put an emphasis on every word uh, and you get a new sentence. So this uh, this is working as an inspiration for that piece for a choir and ensemble. So that was supposed to be this summer as well, but it's going to be next summer. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, I'm just working on how to write music. I'm really focusing on on my craft in, in a more abstract way rather than... So, like I said, there's the gym and there's the real world. Right. So I was really immersed in the real world for a long time, and now I get to go back to the gym. Hmm. So I'm really focused on how to create music, why, and, you know, hone my skills. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a place where people can find your music? Yeah, so I have most of my music on YouTube. I think a lot of my music on SoundCloud. And in general, everything is also on my website, including scores for everything. I don't believe in hoarding scores. <laughs> uh, all my scores are, or the vast majority of my scores are, are available on my website for free for whoever wants to score study or whatever. Wow. Well, thank you very much for being on here today. I, I really appreciate you you taking the time, and thank you for your patience while we had so many technical you difficulties. Made it work. Yeah, it, we it's did. been great talking, and and it's really flattering that you invited me to talk to you. Of course. Once again, thank you to Michael for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, pull up the Composer Chronicles in Apple Podcasts on your phone or go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. These help potential listeners find the show a whole lot easier. The podcast theme music was written by Daryl Banner, and links to all resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes or by going to alexandriamedia.org slash The Composer Chronicles. The Composer Chronicles is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can follow it by searching for the handle Cron Podcast in each of them. If you really love the show and want some bonus and exclusive content, consider becoming a member on Patreon. For only $1.50 a month, members get early access to ad-free versions of every episode, plus an exclusive podcast titled Unscripted. 
Becoming a member helps me pay for all of the equipment and such that I use to bring you this podcast each week. And with more members, I get to improve the quality of my work and the work of present and future projects in Alexandria Media. Click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Trigar to become a member. Next week's episode is a dive into the rich tapestry that is Schubert's illustrious song cycle, Winterreise. The reason why he wrote it is a mystery, but the emotion and beauty of the piece tells a story of a man who knew exactly what he was composing. And now, enjoy Sparks and Flares by Michael Soutenreich. Thank you. 
Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.